0: Morning church family, please get your bibles out. Whether it's a digital or physical bible, and turn with me finally to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're going to be picking back up with the apostle Paul at the end of his stay in the city of Ephesus and following along on on a part of the the outgoing and return leg of his third missionary journey. So uh, while the kids are doing the, the bingo, I'm going to try to explain to the adults how this is going to shake out. Uh, today's message is going to have a slightly different format than usual uh, because of the way that the passage was written. Okay? There's a lot of uh, of names, of places in today's text. And being on the other side of the world, we generally don't know a whole lot about Turkey and Greece and Asia Minor and all that. So, So reading some of today's passage is probably going to feel a little bit like reading like Lord of the Rings for some of us, and that's okay. We shouldn't expect to know everything over there. Uh, but for the few of you that are geographically inclined, we're going to have a map to follow along. Uh, but there's there's not a whole lot that's mentioned about these places other than some really quick sound bites with one exception, and that's in the city of Troas, and that's going to be our main text for the day. Okay, And this, this story that's going to be our main text for today is actually sandwiched between... Uh, two sets of verses that give the details of all of Paul's globe trotting as he goes on this, this missionary journey. So this is what we're going to do. Instead of reading through in an entirely linear fashion, like we normally would, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, then we're going to skip ahead to verses 13 through 16, and, and we'll get a clear picture kind of of the journey there, And then and then we're going to come back and focus on verses 7 through 12. And that's where Luke records... A pretty extraordinary thing that happens in Troas. So that's the plan, and if everybody has uh, Acts 20, we're going to go ahead and open with prayer. So if you'd bow with me. Father God, I just want to ask in Jesus' name for each person here, Lord, that our hearts are open, that we will be good soil so that the Word will take root and bear fruit. We pray, we pray that you will uh, plant seeds in us today that will uh, help your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you will help us to Show a faithful witness to the world that they might receive Jesus and be saved. Father, there's so many, uh, so many more today in the world, Lord, who are, who are on the the broad and and the the very, the obvious path to destruction. And you've given us a straight and narrow. And We ask that you will help us to show that to to others that they might see the difference between us and the world. God, we, we've not done a great job the last you know, 50, 60 years of, of being different from the world. I pray that you'll help us to be different and that people will see it, and that it will bring glory and honor to your name. Help us, Lord, today to, to leave this place with a renewed understanding of your goodness and your power. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. What uproar is he talking about? Does anybody remember? The riot in Ephesus. Yes, you remember that? Great as the Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. The crowd sitting there chanting. It, it's, it's so, it, isn't it funny when people have, they just grab a hold of one line. You know, my body, my choice, or whatever, and just shout it over and over again, and it's just senseless. Anyway, so at this point, oh, by the way, and remember, uh, Paul's friends wouldn't let him go in to, uh, to this amphitheater, by the way. That's, I think that's interesting. Anyway, um, so at this point, it appears that the Holy Spirit led Paul to go on to the next place, and before leaving, I want you to notice what he, he did. It said he sent for his disciples. Now, who are they? Or the disciples? Who are they? Who are the disciples? Timothy Timothy would have been one of them, sure. Uh, Greek converts. Luke's not talking about the original twelve disciples, right? He's he's referring to the Greek word mathetes. It means it means students um, or learners, and we translate as as disciples. So this reference is likely to all of the serious Christians that were in Ephesus. Now, back in, in New Testament times, to be a student meant a lot more than what we think of as when we say a student today. I mean, almost everyone under the age of 18 is a student in the United States, right? Whether they want to be or not. And most of, of school is compulsory here, um, but that's not how it was back then. It wasn't the law, you know. In the ancient world, being a student was far more intense of an endeavor, than it is today. It meant attaching yourself to a particular teacher, and then following him until you became very much like him in your actions, in your words, even in your thinking patterns. It wasn't just uh, voluntary; it was usually a sacrifice to do this, because you would you would give up some of yourself in order to become more like this specific teacher. So, Paul is calling. All of the true converts in the city to come to him. And then Luke says he encouraged them. And I want you to kind of keep that in the corner of your mind for now. Then after encouraging these disciples, he said goodbye and he went to Macedonia, which was way up north, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. Now I want to pause here uh, because we need to recognize something. Okay, first it says that Paul encourages the believer at Ephesus before he leaves. But then it says, as he goes along, he gave much encouragement to the other believers that he encounters. Now, friends, this is not the main point in today's message, but it's certainly worth paying attention to, okay? There are a lot of other descriptors that the Holy Spirit could have led Luke to use, but instead he focused on on the fact that Paul apparently encouraged Everywhere he went, he gave encouragement to believers wherever he set foot. Does that matter? I think it does. I mean, just for for the sake of self evaluation, I'd like you to ask yourself Am I an encouraging presence? Do you tend to be overly critical? exceptionally negative? Do you default to sarcasm instead of praise? Some years back, I was told by a a young lady who had been a student in one of my youth ministries. She's now, I think, going to be 40 this year. So it just kind of reminds me of how old I am. But um, she told me, Mark, you are so not an encourager. And that really hit me. And she really gets irritated because almost every time I see her, I bring that story up. But the reason I bring it up is because it was a pivotal moment in my life. It really was. You know, it, it, was, it, it was right then that it hit me just how critical of a person I am. And since then, I really feel like the Holy Spirit has used her observation to sanctify me. And I want to encourage you to take stock of yourself. Are you an encourager? And if you're not, don't beat yourself up about it. Just ask God to change you instead. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be, to encourage one another. Think about how much more valuable your, your words and your example can be when someone can watch you and listen to you without, without feeling shame. It's a powerful thing. I think we can all learn from Paul here. Um, you know, honestly, maybe the most needed thing in the church today among, among the us as a body of believers is legitimate Christ-centered encouragement. Not, not fake, shallow encouragement, you know, oh, you're so pretty, or whatever. I mean, but, but like literally give, encouraging, giving one another courage to face the day and to, to continue to take up our cross daily. We need to be doing this for each other. Can I get an amen? Do you believe this? Let our words bless others. Anyway, uh, I'm not preaching an entire sermon on that today, but I just felt I felt led to say that, and I hope one day to preach a sermon on that. But anyway, um, we're going to take a look at the map together. We're going to just kind of get an idea of where Paul was going. Um, so if you look here, I circled in, in blue, I guess that's blue, I circled in blue kind of what this leg of the journey is that he's talking about starting over here at Ephesus, and he, he takes a, a ship across. He goes over to, to Macedonia, which is up there in the the upper left quadrant there. And then he went down to Greece, and it says he stayed in Greece for three months. So when a plot was made against him by the Jews, and he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, there's this place in 2 Corinthians where Paul gives this pretty exhaustive-seeming list of all the struggles he's been through, all the, the dangers that he's dangerous situations that he's been in. And, and and there may not have been another contemporary of Paul who was as hated as he was by traditionalist Jews. They're always trying to kill him. So he was going to sail southeast across the Mediterranean Sea to get back, back to, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, we'll oh, we'll see, see that again. again a minute. But instead, he, he stuck, stuck to the land for a while. while. We're, we're going to see that in a moment. Uh, but first, there's a list of names of Paul's traveling companions who would be going on to meet him later. Okay, so Peter the Berean... You remember the, the noble Bereans? They were those. It says these Jews were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica because every time Paul would tell them something, they would search the scriptures to make sure that he was telling the truth. Uh, son of Pherus accompanied Paul, and of the uh, Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby. Uh, Gaius and Aristarchus are probably the same two Macedonians that are mentioned uh, with Paul in Ephesus, and Timothy, that was Paul's protege, uh, and the Asians. Tychicus and Trophimus, they were, they were likely Ephesian Christians. Um, and then back to the map real quickly. Um, I'm just going to see what he's talking about. He went from uh, Greece, and then he took all these folks back with him, and he went all the way up back north, and he was visiting through all these places, and he gets to Philippi. Okay, that's, I know it's kind of hard to see the tiny letters up there, but um, most of your Bibles probably have maps in the back, and you can look and see Uh, Paul's third missionary journey, but at least this gives you kind of an idea of what Luke is talking about here. So um, regarding that list of of names, uh, it says, they went on ahead and they were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now Troas is right there in the middle of the map, uh, kind of at the top, you see the the word eutychus there. Um, so he went from Philippi, they went across the, across the ocean at that point, and they went to Troas. Um, and that's kind of where we're going we're gonna to skip this for now. We're going to come back to that. So um, the next leg of the journey is they're leaving Troas. It says, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So here he's going again by land. It may have been he was trying to avoid assassination. We don't know for sure. I mean, it, it seems like a ship would be a good place to have an assassination. I mean, you stick a couple of guys on there, you know, to, to like pull a Jonah, you know, with Paul, and then there's no body. He's gone, right? So uh, Paul just decided he was going to stay away from the, from the ships for a little bit. It's also possible he was just intent on seeing as many people as he could because on a boat, you kind of have a captive audience, but when you're traveling by land, you get to speak to different people in different places. So we don't really know, but in any case, it says he traveled by land, and he went uh, he met us at Assos, and we took him on board, and we went to Mytilene again. Now this this time he's on a ship, and um, and they went from uh, from Assos to Mytilene, and that's kind of the the last section here. Um, so we're going to go on to verse fifteen. Okay, it says sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. Next day we touched at Samos, uh, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, says, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. You remember Pentecost, uh, you hopefully recall this, that was the event when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Christians for the first time, uh, and it takes place 50 days after Passover. So Paul and his friends, uh, they had left Philippi after Passover, and so they were running against the clock here. And that kind of shows... um, where they actually went, he came to that port city here. Uh, Miletus is where he met with the Ephesian elders. We're going to actually get into that story next week. Um, that's kind of a he met there because it was an interesting situation. Um, he was uh, he had to give them some warnings about themselves, and uh, and give some some encouraging talk to them. Um, there's a lot there, so we're not even going to touch that today. We're just going to. We're just going to stay where we're at for now, but uh, whenever you hear me or someone else uh, talk about Paul's third missionary journey, which was probably also his longest, that's what we're talking about, okay? Um, And now that we've covered the geography, mentioned these verses, I'm going to hone in on that middle section. This is the event that took place in Troas, okay? And so if you, uh, it's not on your, your bulletin insert, so you'll need your Bible, and you'll need to open it to Acts chapter 20 because we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Um, But in doing this, we're going to see at least four things that we take both comfort and instruction from in verses 7 through 12. Okay, Both comfort and instruction. So if you look there, uh, we're going to see what happened in Troas that was important enough For Luke, to record it for posterity. I think this is a really great story. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, that's, that's the Christians in Troas, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There are many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. this is a fairly straightforward passage. You know, I think there's at least a couple of neat conclusions that we can draw out of it, though. Uh, The first is simple, but it's valuable because we're we're given a little bit of an open window into the first century church practice, particularly among the Gentiles, okay? Because remember, Paul, most of the first Christians were were Jews. Uh, Does anybody remember what God did on the seventh day of the creation week? He rested, right? And what commandment for the nation of Israel is derived from that? Sabbath day, right, resting on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day of the week, our Saturday, is the Sabbath for Jews, and they weren't allowed to do any non-essential work on that day. Okay, Uh, the, the priests and the Levites were allowed to work. Pretty much everyone else was required to take the day off from work. God set that day aside for His people that they might worship and that they might rest. This is one of the Ten Commandments, to keep God's Sabbath holy. And it appears that Jewish Christians continued to worship on the Sabbath for the first few years of the church. But in the New Testament, you know, both in the, the Jewish communities and in the Gentile communities, the Lord's Day, Sunday, began to take on a more uh, special significance. And it appears that this ended up being their day of gathering for communion and for the teaching of the Word. Now, some people say, It was still technically Saturday, but it was after 6 p.m., which would have been, to the Jewish mind, that would have been Sunday. That would have been the Lord's Day. I don't know. But I know it says, on the Lord's Day was when they gathered, okay? Um, So this this passage of Acts 20, I I think it's one of the evidences that we have for our practice of meeting on Sunday mornings, okay? Now, based on what we see here, uh, it appears... That even back then, the early church broke bread on Sunday. And the, the way that Luke phrases this, this passage, it sounds like it could be uh, something more like a common, a common event or even a foregone conclusion because of how he phrased it, as opposed to something they just decided to do for that day. Now, if I'm, if I'm being confusing, bear with me, okay? I'm going to give you an example. Here, here's what I mean. If I say, we went to church last Sunday, then that could be a regular deal or it could be a one-time thing, right? Right? But if I say instead, last Sunday when we were at church, that to me sounds more like being in church on Sunday is the norm, right? Is the usual. Does that make sense? Okay. So the language in this text feels like Luke is talking about a normal occurrence. On the first day of the week, people would regularly gather together to break bread. Now, whether this is referring to a fellowship meal, uh, a love feast, or the Lord's Supper or a combination of those? It's hard to know from, from this context. Uh, I think it's probably a combination. I think they met and they had communion together and they also had a meal. But that's just my opinion. Uh, but they they're gathering for some type of religious observance on Sunday. And this is something that my friend, he, he's, a, he's a great guy. Uh, he's a Seventh-day Adventist. He, he would say that, the, that that's irrelevant because he, he believes that Christians should gather for worship on Saturday based on the Old Testament command, and I don't think that's the case. I'm going to base it on two passages. I'm not going to do anything but give you the references today because this is not what the sermon's about, but in case you've ever had a question, hey, why do we worship on Sunday? I'm going to give you a couple of uh, scriptures here. Uh, but again, we're not going to dig into them because that's not what the message is about. But if you want some biblical evidence as to why I don't believe that Christians are legalistically required to observe the Sabbath, Write these scriptures down, look them up later. The first is Romans 14.5. Romans 14.5. The second is Colossians 2.16. Colossians 2.16. And then if you would like some of scriptural reasoning as to why the celebration of the the Sabbath is not legalistically required of Christians, you can look at Hebrews four. One through ten. Okay, there's a big chunk there. So that's if you're truly interested. But for now, because of this passage, I think we can take comfort in the fact that we gather to celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday rather than Saturday, and that's okay. All right? I think, I think this is instructive to us. There's another interesting thing that we glean from this passage, but it, it's more of a supposition, okay, rather than a, a direct instruction. But I want you to notice that Luke specifically mentions the late hour. He talks about midnight, right? He talks about the fact that there were many lit lamps in this room where Paul was speaking. And I remember back in college, um, there was a man in my dorm. His name was Calvin Barbie, which is a kind of a funny last name. But Calvin, uh, his parents used to have this Messianic Jewish teacher come into their house about twice a month. And he would teach on the Word. And I would often go to those gatherings and this man would teach for two or three hours and he would take a break and we would eat dinner because people would bring different things. Uh, and then he would resume teaching for another two or three hours. And we would often get back to campus really late, sometimes after curfew um, from these meetings. But it always seemed like it was worth it because we, we explore the word so deeply. And I think, friends, we can learn from this passage that the word of God is midnight oil worthy. You've probably heard the phrase burning the midnight oil, right? It's an old phrase. Obviously, most of us don't use oil lamps or lanterns anymore for light, but it has an easy-to-understand meaning. We say it of someone who was up really late doing something necessary. You know, a student that was cramming for a test or an employee that's preparing for a really important presentation. We say they were really burning the midnight oil. And here's the point. If Paul had All the time in the world to hang around Troas rather than having to catch a boat the next day. Maybe he would have done his preaching and teaching in the daylight hours. We don't know. But time was of the essence. He knew he was going to be leaving soon. And he wanted to be certain that he told his people everything that God wanted them to hear. And the fact that they were in a room at midnight burning the midnight oil shows that they prioritized the hearing of God's message through his messenger. They were prioritizing hearing the Word of God. Do we do the same? You know, I think if you're here this morning or if you're watching or listening online, then I think it's safe to say that at least today you've made it a priority to listen for the Lord to speak through His Word and His Spirit. But what about daily? I know some of y'all are night owls. I know I used to be one. Not no mo, but uh, some of us are night owls, and your brain is still intact enough at night that you can read the Word and get something out of it. You, you can burn that midnight oil. But I also know that most of us over 25 aren't regularly up at midnight. We weren't even on New Year's Eve and probably haven't been. Uh, I may have been awake, but I certainly wasn't up on New Year's Eve. It's, we can burn the early morning oil, though, Right? so to speak. We can set our alarm a few minutes early and get up and spend time in prayer and spend time in the Word, or we can do it over our lunch break. Whatever it takes, friends, to prioritize God's Word and to both speak and listen to Him through prayer, we need to prioritize this. We need to do this for us. God doesn't need us to do that for Him. We need to do it for us to stay connected, to our source of strength. And by the way, if you still haven't signed up on the YouVersion app, there's still time. You're only a week behind. So I encourage you to do that. It's truly worth it. You know, the Word of God is worthy of burning some midnight oil. Psalm 19 tells us that God's decrees, it says they are more precious than fine gold, that they're sweeter than, than honey straight from the comb. So I think we should treat it as such. I think we should schedule some time with our Heavenly Father and then not stand Him up. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up Dead. Folks, aren't you glad that we're on the first floor and we don't have windows? Because some of you would die. Just saying. You know, can you imagine the cautionary tale that came out of this one? <laughs> said, Back when I was your boy, if you fell asleep in church, you might die. I mean, you know, you never know what happened here. But, but as goofy as it sounds, I am totally serious in saying that the third point of this sermon is you are not the first to doze off in a sermon. You're not the first. You won't be the last. And as much as that sounds like a joke, I want you to think about it for a moment. What does it say about Eutychus that he fell asleep while listening to a sermon? Was he unspiritual? No, not at all. What, What was he doing? Why was he there? He was listening to the word. He was there to commune with other believers and to hear the word of God. Maybe his parents, you know, made him come. We don't know, but at least he was in the right place, even if he suffered a tragic accident. And listen, I've said before in private conversation, I'm not sure if I've ever said this directly from the pulpit here. Um, So I'm going to say this. I would definitely prefer that you stay awake in the message, but I get it. You know, I get it. The temperature in here sometimes is just right. You know, the seats are a little cozy, and you just ate five donuts or whatever, you know. It's the perfect storm of sleepiness. And when the preacher starts showing you maps and talking about geography, it's easy to doze. I know. I get it. You know, I used to love the sermons preached by my predecessor here, but if I sat still long enough, it was snoozeville. Because you just you'd sit there and you just get warm. I get it, okay? I want you to know that. Here's the thing. You're here. You're here. You made it a priority to be here, to set your alarm on the weekend, to leave your comfortable bed, to make your kids get up and maybe fight with them or your spouse, and to come to a gathering of fellow believers so that you can worship the Lord, so we can commune with Him together and to listen to His Word. You're already on the right track, okay? And so if you doze off a little bit I might get a little louder to wake you up, but please don't think you're a bad person or you're any less of a Christian because of it, okay? I'll say it again. We're just glad you're here. Now, if you bring a pillow, <laughs> that's another story, okay? But but I want you to just take comfort. There is a biblical precedent for falling asleep during a sermon and also for dying for doing so. So just bear that in mind, okay? <laughs> Just saying. But thankfully, that isn't the end of the story, okay? Can you imagine how terrible it would have been if this was the end of this story? Think about how his family must have felt. His parents freaking out for letting him sit in the window. Everybody just just panicking. How sad for his family, not to mention Paul, but... But no, verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. Okay, I'm gonna tell you something, guys. That is gonna go over like a lead balloon unless it's true. The parents, the people standing around saw this boy's life. Come back into him. It says, and when Paul had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. So basically, the entire congregation pulled an all-nighter. Maybe they're afraid of falling out a window. (laughs) We don't know. No, but more likely, they're amazed at the power and the goodness of God. They had just witnessed a miracle that validated everything the Lord had told them. I want you to to look with me at this last line. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That's a strange turn of the phrase. It almost feels like an understatement. And I like how how Young's literal translation does line. It says, and they brought up the lad alive and were comforted in no ordinary measure. You know, normal comfort is when you you think you might have washed your wallet and then you find it in your hamper. That's like, oh, that's a good thing, right? But when your child falls from a third-story window and is killed on impact, you're panicked, you're horrified, you're utterly devastated, you're numb, you're shocked, you're crushed, wondering why now, when we're here to worship the Lord, why would he allow such a thing? But when somebody puts their arms around him and says, don't worry, friends, he, he's alive, and he is That is no ordinary measure of comfort. Because in that moment, you know by experience that God can raise the dead. God can raise the dead. He can and He does and He will. He raises the dead. We can trust in that. Because, friends, I can look around this room and I can know that nearly all of us have had someone dear to us who has gone on to be with the Lord. And we think of them as dead when, in reality, they're more alive than we can possibly even grasp with our finite imaginations. Just as his son, Jesus Christ, was dead in the grave, having given his life. As a payment for our sins, and God raised him from the dead, so he will raise up everyone who trusts in him to a new existence and a new glorified body. How do we know this? Because the Bible says so. We saw that in Ezekiel earlier this morning, remember? God, He could even take a valley of dry bones. And turn them into a standing army. And, and what was their life? How did God give them life? His breath. With his breath. He breathed his breath into their lungs and they came to life. But that's not just for the physically dead. What is that a picture of? What did God say this is a picture of? Yeah, let's turn that really quickly. Let's, let's look at that. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37. Real quick here. Flip back to that if you don't mind. It's going to take me as long as they get there as it will you, probably so. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. There it is. Ezekiel 37. I'm not gonna read the whole thing again. I just want to read a little, little bit here. He says, Behold, this is in the middle of verse 12. I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. Oh, my people, he says that phrase again, Oh, my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you will know I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. See, when God puts his spirit in you, brother, sister, you are truly alive. Before that, you're a slave to the flesh, and you're one of the children of wrath. But when you receive His Holy Spirit by His grace through faith, you're really alive because because God has given you spiritual life from the dead. But you may be thinking, you know, I don't feel very alive right now. Maybe you feel like one of those those seeds in the parable that Jesus told that that takes root, and and it begins to come up, but then it starts getting choked out by by the thorns and thistles, you know, the worries and anxieties of this life. The future may not be looking really bright for you. You're beginning to wonder if God is really there, and if he is, if he's really as, as trustworthy as the Bible says, and more to the point, if he actually cares about you. Listen, you're not alone if you're there either. I want you to flip To 2 Corinthians 1, turning your Bibles. I want you to see this with your own eyes. 2 Corinthians 1. This is the passage that Kayla read earlier. Just going to read a little bit of it. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who aren't in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I want you to skip ahead to the middle of verse 8. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Y'all, if I'm being transparent, I've been there. Some of you have probably been there too. Some of you may be there right now. But you are not alone. You are not alone. Even the the great apostle Paul, probably the the best Christian to ever walk the earth, who is just talking about how God comforts us and and how we comfort others. Even he was so beat down by his circumstances that he says he despaired of life. Paul was ready to give up and die. He says, indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. You ever felt like that? Listen, if anyone ever tells you that God will never give you anything you can't handle, show them this passage, please, because somebody's been lying to them. God frequently gives us more than we can handle on our own for a very good reason. Paul says why in verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, that's it right there. If, If you're going through a tough time, it's not because God has abandoned you. Or because he doesn't care or or it doesn't mean you're being punished it means that you're learning to rely on him to be the breath in your lungs to be your source of strength to be your source of life I've gone long enough here I, I, I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you now what is God's breath in you saying to you this morning? How how are you being convicted? Is there a sin that you need to confess? Is is there a prayer that you need prayed over you or a a hand to be placed on your shoulder or an an arm around your neck? Do, Do you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time and receive forgiveness of sins that He died on the cross to earn for you? Do you need to publicly profess faith and be baptized in obedience to him? Well, if you do, then now's the time. Father God, we ask in Jesus' name that if there's anyone here who has not yet received Christ, who does not yet know him, we ask that you give them faith. Open the eyes of their hearts Break the the hardness there, break the barriers that are there father and and open the eyes of their hearts to understand who you truly are and what you've done through your son. We thank you Father for each person here they're here for a purpose and a reason. Uh, Lord, they made it a priority to be here today or to be listening today uh, online. We ask Father that you bless them for taking that time. We ask that you give them what they need to be encouraged as they continue through the day for The word says that joy in you is our strength. We thank you that you are a God who raises the dead. Spiritually, you raise us up, and one day you shall raise us physically to new bodies. We trust you. We believe that you will do what you have promised. But I pray, Lord, for conviction on all of us, conviction on each and every one. In Christ's name.